How do you think about this nature of this job that you have? of the patient as a whole person, the patient as a member of their community, a patient whose outcomes and the way they process information may be very much determined by where they live and their family situation and their economic status and all of those things. Welcome to Healthy Conversations. I'm Dr. Daniel Kraft, and today we're really lucky to be in Healthy Conversations with Dr. Bob Walker, the chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, one of our real, really preeminent medical schools. He has a long history as a healthcare thought leader, innovator from the future medical education and beyond. It's great to see you. You've had a somewhat unique career path after medical school at University of Pennsylvania, came out to California. You are sort of one of the founders of the hospitalist movement in the mid-90s. Can you share a little bit about your journey, how that movement started and where it's gone next, and even move from hospital to home or homeschoolist? I'll try to keep it brief because I'm an old guy, so this could take a while. I, I'd say the defining kind of conceit of my career was I was a political science major in college. And I, I tell people I'm what happens when a political science major becomes a modestly successful academic physician. I have always been interested in the way the healthcare system is organized. It, it relates to something pretty close to the ground. It relates to the way we take care of patients in real life, what it does as a system to achieve the highest quality, safest, least expensive, most satisfying care. It doesn't do that very well. And so that has led me over my career from studying activism in the early years of AIDS and the role of patient advocacy groups to thinking hard about the organization of hospital care. And that led me to coin the term hospitalist to thinking about patient safety and quality. And then about seven or eight years ago, inspired in part by people like you, got really interested in the digital transformation of healthcare and why it was so bumpy when my iPhone's pretty easy. And over the last two years, it's been COVID. The hospitalist thing happened because in 1995, I was asked to become chief of the medical service. At UCSF, I had a boss, Lee Goldman, who's a visionary person who said the medical service is organized the way it was when I was a resident here 25 years ago. That can't be right. Let's think of a different way of organizing inpatient medicine. And I began snooping around thinking, who's at the head of the curve here? I was inspired in part by the evolution of emergency medicine and critical care medicine to fields that had emerged a generation earlier that had the same attributes. Generalist fields that really are specialists in a place. I think hospital care is going to evolve fairly quickly. The concept of hospital at home was introduced 30 or 40 years ago. Pretty good evidence that it works well. Patients like it better, costs are lower, and yet it's gotten almost no traction in 30 or 40 years because economically it's tricky and uh, logistically it's tricky. Right now, if it's admitting a patient to the hospital, it's one phone call to the admitting team. If you want to send the patient to hospital to home, it's probably 12 phone calls including to the oxygen company and the telemedicine company and the this and the that. But I think that it has hit a tipping point now. And you see companies emerge in that space where I think probably 10 to 20% of patients who are currently in hospitals could be taken care of better than and less expensively than they are now in hospitals if we can figure out the logistics and the finances of hospital to home. You've been such a leader in health education. You ran the residency program at UCSF for medicine as well. How we care for folks in these sort of blended modalities, probably, you know, catalyzed by COVID. Does that need a shift in how we educate our caretakers? It doesn't feel like a sea change in the way we interact with patients. So yeah, we need a little bit of new education about telemedicine. I think the big deal is, does the overall paradigm of how we deliver patient care change? We are now gathering data semi-continuously 
we're somehow processing it in a way that doesn't overwhelm the system. That's a non-trivial problem. And we are interacting with you in whatever way works best to improve your care and your health. That's a big, heavy lift, a much heavier lift than just shifting a 15 minute to Zoom rather than in person. If that happens, and I think it will, then the shift has to not just be website manner. The shift has to be how you conceptualize the role of a physician, how you think about this whole team of people, including health coaches and NPs and PAs and nutritionists and others, and also this other member of the team called artificial intelligence. Because if all this data is streaming out of someone's watch or their scale or their, I mean, I just saw a company got $30 million for their digital toilet. Periodically, I'll hear people talk about how wonderful this is going to be. I've got 300 primary care docs who work for me. If I tell them that you're getting that data flow today, they will quit by five o'clock this afternoon. So that requires a huge remodel of the healthcare system and a major change in what a physician does for a living. The, the connected toilet gives new meaning to health streaming data as it yes. flows. <laughs> uh, but to that point, as you mentioned, you know, no clinician primary care specialist wants the raw data from your wearable or your genome, which is still a big barrier. And you wrote a great book, The Digital Doctor, some of the unforeseen circumstances that have evolved from the digitization and connected to mobile health. Yeah. So I wrote The Digital Doctor about seven or eight years ago, and I did it because I was really flabbergasted by how hard the implementation of technology was in healthcare. You know, I'm as wired as anybody else, maybe not as, as wired as you, but but I believe in technology. I believe in the promise of it. But I saw even the first step, which was really the movement from paper to electronic medical records, was incredibly fraught with unanticipated consequences. You know, doctors not looking patients in the eye anymore because they're so busy being pretty unhappy data entry clerks. And, you know, more subtle things like we used to go down to radiology to talk, to look at our film, quote unquote. Now it's a digital image. You can see it anywhere. So we lost our connection with the radiologist that we used to have. And I think we're now at a much more advanced stage. We've gone far beyond just the electronic health record. But I think the electronic health record teaches us something. And what it teaches us, if you don't think hard about the end user, about the experience of the patient, the experience of the doctor, the nurse and others, and you come at this with a sort of tech first mindset, you'll get it wrong. And so for physicians, we're spending an enormous amount of time entering data into these machines and we get amazingly little useful intelligence out of it, whether it's decision support or predictions. And the same thing is true for patients. We have now enabled patients digitally. They now have their portals. They now see our notes. So they get a cardiogram and it says abnormal cardiogram. And of course, what are they going to do? They're going to message their doctor and say, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Is that something I should be worried about? And the doctors are underwater. So I think we developed a way of patients connecting with their clinicians without giving a moment's thought to what is the economic and the workflow and the workforce model to manage this. Some have used the term, you know, digital empathy, those connection points between patient and physician. Medicine is a really complicated industry, I think more complex than most other industries that we've digitized. I don't know that how much human connection you need to get a prescription for antibiotics for bronchitis. I think there's a fair amount of stuff that really is pretty algorithmic, that if you had the right data, the right inputs, patients could get it in a way that feels far more transactional than we're used to. And I think for those of us as physicians, it kind of bugs us. But can a bot or AI deliver to them the news that they have cancer? 
or here's the implications of their chest pain or whatever? I don't think so. What's hard about this is in the old days, patients only had one way of accessing the credentialed expert, which was to go see the doctor in a physical space in this thing that we called an office visit or an ER visit. But to parse this well so that the things that are done in a pretty algorithmic and transactional way, which will be cheaper, are the right things. But when you actually need a human connection, you get it. I think it's a pretty tricky thing to work out, and I don't think we've even begun to think that through in a way that, that we're going to have to in order to get it right. Yeah, it sort of brings us into the need for sort of design thinking and not just precision medicine, but the precision user interface, whether you're a baby boomer or millennial, you might interact with your clinician in very different ways. Has this, you know, given your experience having been the residency director at UCSF Medicine, changed the way you think about medical education? I think it does influence the nature of education because the idea of the doctor as the expert, the font of all information, and a very hierarchical relationship where the patient doesn't know very much and the doctor will tell the patient everything he or she needs to know, that was a notion during my training. And it's not no longer going to be the way healthcare works. Digitization always democratizes things. So the patients always did come in with their own ideas and preferences and biases. And I think we undervalued those. Up until, you know, 10 or 20, 30 years ago, the doctor really was the only source of information. And now the patient has myriad sources of information. Patients may come to the table knowing as much about their problem as you do, maybe more. And sometimes they have access to craziness and they have very little ability to dissect, <laughs> figure out which one is which. That leads to challenges where patients may come in armed with information that's wrong or misleading, and they may be quite wedded to it. You know, we're not used to having a lot of confrontational relationships with our patients. And so one of the challenges I've heard during COVID, the physician then had the job of trying to correct that. That's not an easy thing to do. You're initially like, who are you patient to be questioning me? And I certainly have seen doctors like that in my career. Now, if that's your attitude, you're in the wrong field. You have to come in assuming the patients have thought a lot about this, assuming they've looked up whatever they have on Google beforehand. And some of the time it's wacky and you're going to need to figure out a way of dissuading patients from some information that they thought was credible. Yeah. You played a major role in social media. How do you translate complex and often moving science to a patient who may have access to the entire compendium as well as you know misinformation? Health communication has always been a core part of our job. But the playing field has changed massively. I have a daughter who's a fourth year medical student at UCSF now, so I've been watching her evolution as a physician. And it's fascinating because it really is going from novice to expert. And the kinds of scenarios that one might have given you or me, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, which is the patient comes into your room and you make your proclamations and they say, thank you, doctor. Those are not the scenarios anymore. It's a much leveler playing field. I think some of the things that have changed probably even more than the communication is a much deeper appreciation of the issues of health equity, disparities, and the social determinants of health. I think I learned precisely nothing about that. Maybe there was a nod to it in one lecture in epidemiology that it turns out that much of how patients do has more to do with sort of where they live and their socioeconomic status than any medicine that we might give them. But now I think it's being integrated much, much more into 
their training. And training is two things, really. Training is sort of facts and approaches, but a lot of it is enculturation. How do you think about this nature of this job that you have, of the patient as a whole person, the patient as a member of their community, a patient whose outcomes and the way they process information may be very much determined by where they live and their family situation and their economic status and all of those things. It's an exciting phase, but working through it is very, very different than medical education 30 years ago. 20-something years ago, when I was a Stanford med student, I was in the ER with a resident named John Halamka. We're the only two geeks carrying around a Hewlett Packard yeah. 200LX, where we had sort of a little bit of a health compendium and a little bit of an advantage on rounds. But do you think the future of our EMRs and uh, charting will include the, you know, the sociome and the connectome and the metabolome? How do they start to educate themselves more on this sort of sociome and, and other layers that are becoming sort of continuous? I think you're raising a really important question, which is I can understand that the patient's situation and clinical presentation is influenced by their housing status or their economic status or racial and ethnic differences and still feel like, all right, what do I do about this? I mean, it's much easier to prescribe a pill. I think it's an appropriate question to say, what about all this stuff is actionable? It may be that you can't do anything about the patient's poverty. But if you don't appreciate the patient's poverty and its influence on their outcomes and their ability to take the medicines you're prescribing and get the medicines you're prescribing, and if the healthcare system ultimately doesn't rejigger itself to account for those things, particularly if the payment system changes, as I hope it does, to a system in which we're paid in part based on the outcomes of patients, I mean, that will provide a greater incentive than we have now for our systems that may be more social workers and fewer doctors. It may be that we actually are investing in sort of understanding the community now in different ways and being able to reach out to patients in different ways. It's very, very tricky. I mean, periodically I'll hear about a healthcare system. We understand the importance of socioeconomic predictors. So we're beginning to work on building housing. And my instinctive response to that is like, we barely know how to deliver healthcare effectively. What makes us think we're going to be any good at building housing? So this, I think, is mostly going to be partnering with organizations that actually are in those spaces to help patients in new ways. In terms of meeting patients where they are, you know, there's some examples of using, doing blood pressure screening in the African-American barbershops, all the way to, they have a data plan and access to Wi-Fi, et cetera. Once you build the thing, even if you're building it for well-to-do people, the cost then of making it available to people that can't afford it, but scales very cheaply. Then it just is payment system 101. If your payment system somehow has to cover the cost of a, of a wireless plan for a patient on Medicaid, and your alternative is because you're not treating their blood pressure and their diabetes effectively, they're in your ER every other month. It's a no-brainer that you would be far, far better off paying for their wireless plan. If you take a poor person and you say, for $500 a year, I can give them the digital capabilities that allow them to access the right specialist for their problem, and that would decrease the probability they're gonna get sick, be hospitalized, go to the ER by 50%. I'm guessing the ROI on that would be massively positive. It's just a question, is the system smart enough to create a payment model and then a way of moving money from one column to another to allow that to happen? I think that's likelier than not to happen. One of the sort of amusing parts is I think about how people react to the COVID. Look how it exposed these disparities in healthcare, like they were new. 
I mean, the outcomes for cancer, if you look at life expectancies and in, in wealthy zip codes and poor zip codes, you know, they differ by 20 years. So we've known about health disparities forever. I think what happened is during COVID, in part because of George Floyd, people paid attention to it for the first time. And when they pay attention to it, they realize it's unconscionable and unethical and that you could fix a huge number of them if it's targeted well. And if you create an incentive for entrepreneurs, it doesn't strike me as that hard a problem to solve. What have you noticed in terms of your colleagues at UCSF and beyond in terms of clinicians of today or healthcare workers getting more involved in the social side? There's absolutely no question that the kind of activism and social consciousness around issues of health equity are far, far, far more on the radar screen of physicians today and institutions today than they were before. You know, I'm very proud of UCSF in this regard. We're being pushed more and more by our junior faculty and by our students and our residents. For many of them, this is a defining issue in their career. You know, they went into healthcare in part because of issues of health equity. Our medical school is about 50% from underrepresented groups in medicine. Our residency is about 30%. The healthcare system has to build in sort of a financial model to attack these things with the passion and the fervor that people bring to the table. I think that's beginning to happen. I think you can very easily get stuck in, you know, lip service and everybody saying all the right things. But then the, the real hard questions are, what do you actually do practically? And where do you find the resource to do it? And I have to say, that's a little bit of a concern I have, because for the last 20 years, I've been very much in the middle of the patient safety movement. And that was a movement that was energized by a report that came out in the Institute of Medicine about 20 years ago, saying, you know, we're killing close to 100,000 people a year from medical errors. The amount of energy and resources going to patient safety, I think has gone down in part because there are these other imperatives. How do we create a balance that does what we're here to do, which is improve health for all of the people that we're taking care of? So I want to zoom out now to where we are today in 2022. I'm one of at least 250,000 of your devoted Twitter followers. And first of all, thank you for the amazing job you've been doing at synthesizing so much complex information. What's that been like for you? Well, my wife is sick of it because every time she comes downstairs, I'm you know doing a TV or radio interview and I so I was leaving the house to go to the wards and I said, bye, honey. And she said, oh, I'll miss you. And I said, oh, you don't have to. I left Ra the Rachel Maddow tape on the VCR. She said, get the hell out of here. <laughs> so I was on Twitter before. I liked it. I probably had 15,000 followers. But when COVID hit, I had a sense, first of all, this is going to be the most important issue in the world. Huge numbers of lay people are going to be trying to keep track of everything. I like thinking big picture. I like being a synthesizer. And I thought there might be a role of some people who pulled a lot of different threads together, processed it, made sense of it, and then put it out to people in a way that was accessible to them. And it turns out that was right. My following went from 17 or 18,000 to 260,000. It's a big responsibility. In the last six or eight months, I found that my particular lane has been not only to synthesize it, but to say to people, here's what I am doing. Here's how I am or I'm not wearing a mask. I am or I'm not traveling. If I am, here's the kind of mask I'm wearing. I think for a lot of people that was useful. I found that the response from the Twitter community has been almost entirely positive. My world, when I tweeted about my younger son's case of COVID a couple of months ago, and one day I tweeted, you know, I love him to pieces, but I wouldn't want him to breathe on me. And all of a sudden I got this storm of people saying, you are a terrible parent. There's nothing that would cause me not to want my kid to breathe on me. But I think it's been an amazing way of keeping myself educated 
And then it's been extraordinarily gratifying to feel like people are taking advantage of what you know. There's so much uncertainty. Incredibly important because it, it is a full-time or more than a full-time job to just try to put it all together and make it locally contextual. My wife says, oh, Dr. Walker tweeted this or Dr. Topol, did you see that? I'm like, yes, but I didn't tell you about it. Uh, so <laughs> you're often you know, head of the curve. And you also had a run guest hosting The Bubble, one of the biggest podcasts in public health, which um, Andy Slavitt was working on, but took a sabbatical while he was at the Biden White House. Any highlights on doing a, a podcast version? Everybody complains about the modern media environment, but most of what I've learned about the pandemic has come from Twitter and not just from Twitter, but seeing Eric Topol cite an article that I would not have seen and then going and reading the article. And as you know from doing this, I mean, the podcast world is sort of a different version of this, a very democratized way of accessing the brains of people who you find interesting and with a wonderful host like you asking really good questions. When Andy called me and said, can you sit in for five months while I go to the Biden White House? I, first of all, I was incredibly gratified and touched. But I just thought, what a great platform. The ability to sort of think really broadly about what are the key issues that people need to understand in order to make sense of this thing was was really a pretty cool opportunity. Any sort of silver linings that you see from the pandemic, both in terms of the communication side, the medical, the technology angle? You know, I talked to your old friend, John Halamka, actually had interviewed him for The Bubble and was asking him that question. And he gave me this wonderful example. You know, he came to the Mayo Clinic for this new job when he left Harvard a month before the pandemic started. And he said he was handed the 2030 Mayo Clinic a digital plan. And he said by the end of 2020, it was done. Basically, they took 10 years of what they thought they would do and shoved it into a year. I have an abiding belief, and I think you do too, that medicine will ultimately be improved tremendously by digital transformation from being a thing that happens only in a visit in a space that we own to something that's much more ubiquitous, much more patient-centered, but it's going to be bumpy and there'll be unanticipated consequences. But the faster we go, the better. It accelerated the emergence of really effective dashboards and data visualizations. You know, I can go online and in 10 seconds look at the UCSF COVID report. It shows me how many people are in the hospital, in the ICU, how many are with COVID versus for COVID, how many are testing positive with symptoms, without symptoms. Never had access to anything like that before. Five years ago, three years ago, if I said, I want all this information, somebody would have sent me 12 spreadsheets, which of course was worthless. I don't think artificial intelligence moved as fast as I thought it might, but the thing that definitely did accelerate, which will push it along, is the labor shortage. Even if you think you can afford to solve every problem with a, yet another nurse or another NP or another PA or another doctor, you're probably not going to be able to find them. You're probably not going to be able to hire them and keep them. And we've also accelerated the burnout. You know, it's the third or fifth wave of the mental health challenges and others and the shortages that have been exacerbated by pandemic. Any sort of solutions or um, hope? I think there is a tendency in healthcare delivery organizations to see, you know, nurses or doctors complaining and saying, oh, they're just whiny. I think through COVID, there was a much deeper appreciation of the toll that delivering healthcare was taking on frontline workers. Burnout is not just a moral and ethical problem. It's a business problem. If you have unhappy workers, you're not going to be able to have A, enough of them, and B, you're not going to have happy patients. My organization has done much better than it used to. First of all, we survey people a lot, and the surveys are decisive. I mean, when we see our net promoter scores, not where we want them to be, 
that becomes like number one on our strategic plan. And so, for example, this digital inbox issue really surfaced as a problem just in the past year or two when we looked at our net promoter scores. What do doctors and nurses want? They want to be taking care of people. They want to be operating at the top of their license. They don't want to be doing things that are clearly algorithmic. I think raising it as a problem and demonstrating to healthcare organizations how important it is to participate in fixing it, I think is a very positive trend. So with this explosion of, you know, digital solutions, somewhat catalyzed by COVID, it's often still about the incentives because, you know, it's, it's one thing to have it on the formula. It's another thing to, to use it. I think it's a really hard problem. And I think you're right. It has to be integrated into the payment system. And the problem is people say, well, value-based payment is just around the corner, but they've been saying it for 25 years. And so if you look at a system like mine, our incentive is still to take care of sick people. We have more business than we have capacity for. But if you are dependent on a system like mine to make an enormous investment in people doing care at home so that they keep themselves healthy, the existing payment system does not provide that catalyst. I'm old enough to have seen a lot of statements that value-based care is inevitable. The cost of health care is unsustainable. Now, I'm old enough to remember when people were writing that when the cost of health care was 11% of GDP not 18% of GDP. So clearly they were wrong because it not only got sustained at 11%, but it went to 18. So I don't know what the catalyst will be to move toward a system that is more value-based. Totally agree. I think one of the challenges is that there's many different healthcare systems and some are doing this quite well and others aren't. NHS has some great examples, technologies out of Israel, where you can kind of buy and align incentives and the ability to integrate this into the workflow and it's not pay per widget. So what would you like listeners to know about what's the art of the possible? Well, I think one of the things that I find most interesting about the current era is the last five to 10 years in healthcare digital were really dominated by the electronic health record. It's hard for people to remember this, but in 2008, fewer than one in 10 hospitals, one in 10 doctors, offices had an electronic health record. So the system was entirely paper-based. Now, fewer than one in 10 does not have an electronic health record. So to me, we're entering a very exciting, what I think of as a post-electronic health record era, much more diverse set of tools, you know, a company building a tool for diabetes or for emphysema or for hypertension. The challenge there, of course, is then integration. Patients don't just have one problem, they have five, and they're not going to be using five different tools, and they're not going to be signing on to five different places. So somehow all these things have to then weave together into something that feels integrated and one sort of home base for patients and providers. But I think we're in a much better place than we were five years ago when we were really thinking about this big monolithic enterprise tool as being the be all and end all. So with that, Dr. Bob Wachter, Chair of Medicine at UCSF, thanks for all the amazing work you've done and that you are doing and really, uh, really appreciate you joining us today on Healthy Conversations. Thank you for the opportunity, Daniel. Great to talk to you.